When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard, I'm Freddie Sayers. The question of the culture wars and big business are often thought of as separate things, but in recent years they have been coming closer and closer together. One person who's been observing this fusion, he even wrote a book about it called Woke Inc, is Vivek Ramaswamy, and I'm happy to say he joins us live from the US. Hi Vivek. How you guys doing? Very well, thanks. So. This is your topic. You call it Woke Capitalism. Your, your book was called Woke Inc. The whole adventure of Elon Musk into the world of Twitter has somehow exposed this fusion of culture war issues and big money capitalism in a kind of a new way. I, I wonder if you can help trace through with us what you think this has revealed. Yeah, well, it is revealing, as, as we will say, it's playing out as we speak. Look, one of the things I've been saying for a long time, at the time I started saying this, it was it was dismissed as a conspiracy theory. Now it's become almost mundane to make the observation, is that when we see the technology company-driven censorship, for example, or content moderation practices on the internet, we eluded ourselves for a long time by saying that this was just the actions of private companies deciding what they did and didn't want to see on their own platforms, which sounds reasonable enough. One of the things we've learned over the last couple of years is that actually these aren't the actions of private companies. They're the actions of government actors coordinating with private companies to decide what does and does not show up on the internet. It is state action in disguise. In the US, we're now seeing that actually, speaking of Twitter, before Elon Musk took over Twitter, there's now evidence that actually came out that Alex Berenson, who was a critic of the US government in the US, was specifically the target of White House officials who met with Twitter officials to pressure them and ask them why they hadn't taken down his account, which eventually those Twitter officials went on to do. And so I think one of the things that's coming out with the you know, Elon Musk takeover of Twitter is that it's not, not only that it's no longer a public company, it's no longer a company that appears to be taking the same kind of direction from the US government. And I think that what he said more recently is that he's been gonna put a spotlight on some of the censorship decisions that Twitter did make. What was the rationale and what was the communications behind them? I think that's going to expose a lot, suggesting that Twitter, even on its own as a company, wasn't even making these censorship decisions. It was actually doing it as the censorship arm of the US government and possibly other governments around the world too. So what do you think the cause of that fusion is, that kind of teaming up of the government and big tech? 
sometimes it's said that they're both kind of left-facing in some way, filled the staff of some of these big technology companies are filled with progressive West Coast types. And then obviously we've got a democratic administration at the moment and they're natural bedfellows. Do you think that's it or do you think it's, it's more than that? I have a more cynical view than just that, okay? Uh, so I think a lot of this dates back to the 2008 financial crisis, actually, and I write about this in Woke Inc., where what happened in 08 was that, you know, capitalists went from being viewed as the good guys, the heroes in the pre-2008 era, to being viewed as the bad guys by the old left afterwards, especially on the back of receiving the government bailouts. And what happened was that what they said was, you know what, instead of the old left coming after us and doing the things that Occupy Wall Street wanted us to do, we'll make a bargain. We'll use our corporate power to advance the objectives of a new left that had slightly different concerns than the old left. The old left was all about economic redistribution, take money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and give it to poor people to help poor people. This new sort of, we'll call it the woke left that emerged right around the same time, around the time of Barack Obama's election as president of the United States, what they said was actually the theory of the case is slightly different. We care more about systemic racism and misogyny and bigotry and climate change and the racially disparate impact of climate change and so on. And so what they said was, look, if you advance our objectives, we'll look the other way to leave your power structure intact. And so that happened on Wall Street, where the Occupy Wall Street left wanted to Occupy Wall Street, this new woke left that said that, okay, push that Occupy Wall Street left to one side, we'll do a deal with you guys. And that was great for major financial institutions where, you know, effectively a bunch of big banks got in bed with a bunch of woke millennials. Together, they birthed woke capitalism. They used that to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. And then Silicon Valley realized that they could then play the same game. Because Silicon Valley realized that in the pre-2008, 2010 era, the biggest threat to their monopoly power used to come from the old left, right? Break up big tech was a left-wing slogan long before it was a right-wing slogan in the United States. But what they recognized was that, you know what? We can use our monopoly power in service of the objectives that the new left cares about to censor or take down hate speech or misinformation as that new progressive movement defines it. But just like the Wall Street guys, we won't do it for free. We effectively expect that new left to look the other way when it comes to leaving our monopoly power intact. And so I think it was actually this sort of arranged marriage between two bedfellows who didn't particularly love one another, right? This is not an arranged marriage of love I'm talking about. It is more like a form of mutual prostitution that worked for as long as each side got something out of the trade. And I think that became the bargain for both sides, is to say that Silicon Valley gets to grow unchecked with respect to its corporate power, its network effects, in ways that defanged the concerns of the left so long as they actually substantively use that power to advance certain of the substantive political ends of that same left that once wanted to go after them. That's what's going on. So the core of your analysis then is, is essentially that these hugely powerful players that were already powerful, but are now more, there is more power concentrated in fewer hands than maybe at any point in history, if we look worldwide. Those players have worked out that instead of risking activists undermining their power, they need to become activists or be seen to be in cahoots with or best friends with activists, and that way they're gonna be safe. Is that, is that a fair summary? That's the US version of it. That's the Western version of it, absolutely. And in a certain way, you, you can even see how true that is when you look at the Chinese version of this. I mean, look, Google ceremoniously 
to satisfy some of those very activists in the U.S. said they were leaving China. Don't be evil was the policy. They won't carry out the bidding of the CCP in censoring access to a free and open internet, only to find years later that they had resuscitated a project called Project Dragonfly, which secretly was working with the CCP to create a version of a search engine in Google that included a great Chinese wall. So, so in, in either sides of the world, they're doing whatever allows them to aggregate the greatest power for themselves, saying what needs to be said, appearing to say what needs to be said, or doing the kinds of things that signal virtue in a way that allow them to aggregate greater profit and power. That's the name of the game. So I want to talk about Elon Musk in just a minute, but you mentioned Alex Berenson there for a moment, who's a former New York Times journalist who became very controversial during the pandemic because he was against lockdowns, he was against vaccine mandates and all the rest of it. He was, as you said, ultimately removed by Twitter. And it, it occurs to me that the pandemic really sped a lot of this up, didn't it? Because somehow it provided a great moral incentive. There was a huge reason for everyone to talk about information sharing being potentially dangerous in the context of this virus. And suddenly we saw in a two-year period, a lot of these activities just fast forward. It, it feels unrecognizable just from two and a half years ago. Well, I think that's a trend that's going to repeat itself, because as you can see, the new COVID is climate change, right? COVIDism was a religion. Climatism is becoming the new religion that replaces it, all the way down to the alleged misinformation that needs to be purged from the internet. Climate misinformation, if you haven't heard the term, is the new term of art of the new COVID misinformation that fills in the gap. So I'm almost agnostic to the substance. I don't know a ton about what Alex Berenson has or hasn't said. Uh, believe it or not, I have a day job uh, you know, that I can tell you about <laughs> if you're interested. But you know, I'm not in the journalistic community. But what I do care about is I don't care what, whether he's on one side or the other of the COVID debate. I care about the fact that the First Amendment in this country, in the United, from an American perspective at least, was created, if it was created to do one thing, it was to protect critics of the government, to give them the freedom to criticize the government. This was a critic of the government who the government wanted to silence but could not silence because there's this pesky thing called the First Amendment. So they used and pressured private companies that operate outside of the system of checks and balances that you have in the government to silence him instead. This would be something that has George Washington and George Orwell both doing backflips in their grave if they could actually see what was going on. That's what bothers me. And I could care less about the content of whether it's COVIDism, climatism, Alex Berenson or Schmerenson. That didn't really matter to me. I think it's the principle that actually that, that, that I care about most. Into this picture then walks Elon Musk with what started, we almost thought it was a joke when he first said he was going to take over Twitter. It turned out very much not to be. How, do, how has this affected it? Because in a way, it's a strange kind of savior of, of free speech. It, it's not really what you would choose, I would suggest, if you're looking for a genuinely neutral public sphere to have a different billionaire who has a different kind of politics coming in and making the public square into his own private fiefdom. It, it doesn't feel like the dream solution. And yet, do you think it's opening things up? What's your assessment? I don't know. I'm, I'm still waiting to find out. I mean, I don't use the word savior at all. In fact, one of my criticisms of the conservative movement is kind of a parallel version of my criticism to the, of, the, of the modern progressive movement, is that you know in this moment where we lack faith and, and patriotism and, and whatever else in this country referred to something higher that we believed in, something else fills the void. And on the left, it's new secular religions like COVIDism or climatism or wokeism or whatever. On the right, you know, there's something about the hunger for a new Christ-like figure. And Elon Musk is the latest Christ-like savior figure for the day. 
I guess when you don't believe in actual Christ, you start believing in Christ substitutes instead. I'm not of that ilk, by the way. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I'm but not do you some feel, sort of... Do you feel uneasy about the idea I do, that... actually. I, I, I do, and, and here's part of the reason why. And so I'll get into the specifics of what Elon said is... So what, some of the things he said don't sit well with me. I mean, he said that, I, you know, maybe we don't want the far left or the far right. We want the 80% of the people who are in the middle. Well, I don't think, I mean, I, if I had to pick, I guess I would pick a centrist, a politically centrist model of censorship over a uniformly left-wing model of censorship, I guess, if I had to pick. But using a centrist, a politically centrist model of still centralized content moderation and viewpoint-based discrimination is by no means operating a free speech platform. That's what he says sometimes. Other times he says things that are actually more consistent with operating it like a free speech platform, like giving users the power to decide what they don't do and don't get to see on the internet. But I do worry a little bit about just substituting a different political content as the North Star for what does and doesn't show up. That's not what it actually means to operate a free speech platform. I don't think it's just because it's centrist as opposed to left wing solves the problem. He's most recently, uh, Elon Musk, that is, had a spat with Apple, uh, or at least Apple was rumored to be considering removing Twitter from their app store, which is the ultimate way of using their enormous monopoly power to completely wipe out a, a, an application. It hasn't happened. And we now see as of today that Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, and Elon Musk have met and apparently have had a kumbaya moment. He got a lovely tour of the Apple HQ. He posted a little video of it. They had said they had a great conversation. And now apparently everything's fine. What do you make of that exchange between a kind of an aggressive Musk and a defensive Apple? Well, I think they both share something in common, which is a uh, common master. That master is known as the CCP, that both uh, that both Tim Cook and Elon Musk probably have to bow down to on a given day. So in a certain sense, if you bow down to the same master, maybe your brother's in arms again. So I don't, I don't know if that was what brought them together or what something else. What do you mean else. by that? You, you mean, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that Apple, if when the CCP tells you to jump, Apple asks how high. I'm pretty sure Elon Musk is going to have to be in a similar position too. I think some of his recent comments about Taiwan suggest as much where he says that Taiwan should become a special administrative region of China annexed to China. Well, guess what? He got a nice attaboy on the back, a little pat on the back when his Shanghai factory and regulator in China gave him a nice little tax break within days after him having made that comment about Taiwan. This is so because I think that's all of his Tesla vehicles are, are made in China. Is that why? I mean, Many of them are. And I think the batteries required to power electric vehicles are produced in, in among other places, the Shenzhen region of China, which is the site of probably one of the modern greatest human rights atrocities committed by a major nation since the Third Reich of Germany. This is, we could go on for hours about this. This is a different topic, but I do think it is a kinship that uh, that Tim Cook and, and Elon Musk probably have is that they both bend the knee to the true overlord, which is Xi Jinping. But put that to one side, uh, you know, I think that whether or not Apple was picking on Twitter, and Elon is a mercurial man, right? So one day he says that Apple is, is wants to remove them from the App Store, the next day it's all honky-dory. Put aside the Twitter case, we know that Apple does this, right? That's, how, that's what happened with Parler last year. And the illusion of choice is indeed an illusion where actually, if you wanted to, let's say, switch to an Android phone to be able to use the Google Play Store to have a social media app like Parler on your phone, Google did the same thing. I think that reveals the monopoly on ideas, right? And that's not quite a monopoly on products, but a monopoly on ideas. That's the real ideological cartel in Silicon Valley today. It's not a classical product cartel, it's an ideological. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cartel that's engaged not in price-fixing in the strict sense. Yes, consumers get access to the modern Internet for a very low cost or even for free widespread product choice. It's not quite price-fixing. It is idea fixing, and Apple absolutely plays a role in that idea fixing scandal. So Vivek, help me here, and I think a lot of our viewers would be asking the same question, which is, if we can't really trust Mr. Musk necessarily to be a, a, a fair governor of a fair and free public conversation, and nor can we trust any of the other big tech overlords, what is the solution here? I mean, how how can we have what fundamentally needs to be a technology, which is to help facilitate our public conversation, who should oversee that? What kind of solution? I think no one should oversee it. I think we actually need greater market competition. And part of the reason we don't have that market competition is that we have state protection. We have corporate welfare that protects the companies who have already, unfortunately, aggregated market power through network effects, in part through state protection, through statutes like Section 230, through the products of lobbying, through the products of of state coordination. And I think that we now have to pay the price for it in the form of the limited marketplace of ideas that that we're able to suffer in as a consequence of the the Truman Show. I don't know if you ever watched the movie The Truman Show, but the Truman Show version of reality that the modern internet represents when the gatekeepers actually have get to decide what does and doesn't get to show up. So anyway, so I, mean, you I think, can complain about You mean the past. you think we should be breaking up Twitter? There should be more social media networks that you can choose from? I mean, there is a bit of a direction of travel in that direction already. 
there are new social media networks cropping up, but they, they tend to be just partisan groupings. You get a kind of right-wing social media network, and now there's probably going to be a woke social media network. I'm not sure that's any more healthy than having one big one with an evil sensor over the top of it. Is that what you're thinking might be a solution? Just, just many different bubbles? I'm generally a skeptic of governmental breakups. Uh, I think that they have to apply a really high bar. But I, but I would be a fan of, of getting rid of other state protections. To sort of say that, this is in the American context here, but to say that if you get a form of government protection like Section 230 protection, well, guess what? You then abide by the same constraints as the federal government, which is according to the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. You can't have it both ways. Either you don't get the special form of governmental protection, or if you do, you abide by the same constraints. The Constitution exists to protect everyday citizens from governmental overreach to, pre to preserve the freedoms of those citizens. You can't have the government then apply a cloak of immunity to some of those same private actors with those private actors then being exempt from those constitutional constraints that are designed to protect those everyday citizens. So those are the kinds of solutions, I've written about this in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, reviving state action doctrines when you see lurking state action in the guise of a private enterprise, it's still state action. I don't know about you guys on the other side of the pond, but we Americans sometimes need something to rhyme in order to remember it. And so, you know, as I sometimes describe, if it's the, the Constitution, if it's, if it's state action in disguise, the Constitution still applies. And if a company is going to do the bidding of the government through the back door, then it turns out that company ought to be bound by things like the First Amendment, which here in the U.S. refers to the protection, uh, among other things, on free speech. So, um, you know, those are the kinds of solutions I lean more towards than just a low resolution break them up. Uh, you know, I think that that's a dangerous, slippery slope, and I'm mostly an antitrust skeptic. But I think we got to go to the root cause of what caused the problem in the first place, which was, I think, an unhealthy level of governmental coordination corporate welfare and, and uh, you know, two, two bedfellows who ought not be sharing the same bed, let's actually execute a clean divorce. So you need kind of bigger, more effective regulators in some kind, some, some sort of oversight of when government is getting too cozy with big business and it, it needs to be policed better in short. The people who need to police that are voters, are everyday citizens. I'm not sure that's another creating another regulatory body to police it. I think it is good leaders rising up to be able to describe that problem, which is otherwise hiding behind a lot of obfuscating smoke to everyday citizens who can then hold the political class accountable to make sure that they're not in the business of, of you know, commingling their activities with those of large companies. I mean, look, if, if, if there's a president of the United States who, who really cared about this, one of the things you'd do is to say that, you know, over the last five years, every act of governmental coordination with a private company, I'm gonna suss that out and I'm going to actually make sure that those private companies, when carrying out the mandates of the government, are going to be operating according to the same constraints as the government, including according to constitutional constraints. That's not, that's not the kind of leadership we have right now in the U.S., but I think it is the kind of leadership that we need. And, and I think that that's going to, you know, that's going to be what it takes. Is I would characterize it more as leadership and less as the creation of a new regulatory bureaucracy. That's what we're going to need. Let's move on, if we could, for a moment. I know we haven't got too much time, but to talk about FTX and the, the, the crypto crash. Because although it's a different set of issues in, in some way, it, it feels like it belongs to the same family of, of worries, which is very powerful, um, highly financially successful organizations giving themselves the, the allure and the appearance of very virtuous kind of semi-campaign groups. And, and Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO of FTX, definitely did that. He was one of the figureheads of the so-called effective altruism movement. You know, people had considered him a bit of a pinup 
uh, in the kind of virtuous world. What's your take on that story and, and what have you learned from it? So what I've learned from it is the same principle. Unfortunately, we have learned time and again when watching these fraudulent virtue signalers is that you pretend, it seems today, if you're a leader of captain of industry, you pretend like you care about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more of each. It is the cardinal rule of 21st century woke capitalism. It is the first commandment. And sadly, it works every time. I mean, it goes beyond the financial sector. You take about, who, who is it? Uh, Mar Martin Wintercorn, who was the CEO of Volkswagen, waxing eloquent about the climate transition, waxing eloquent about green energy, winning ESG awards, shortly before it was revealed that his company was the one that was actually literally tampering with the emissions measurements in their own cars. That would have been detected earlier. It's like tampering with a smoke detector in an airplane lavatory. It would have detected, the public would have detected this sooner if it weren't for the Vogue Virtue smokescreen. And the problem with virtue signaling is at some point, the appearance of virtue becomes more important than actually being virtuous. And this is the problem time and again, from Winter Corn to SBF to Adam Newman, to some extent with Elizabeth Holmes, the, uh, the uh, cultivation of this do-good persona that prevents the public from seeing through the act. And why does the public fall for it? This goes back to the point I was making earlier. We're so hungry for sort of cause and meaning and purpose and this idea we want to believe in something higher that we follow these false prophets time and again into the same trap. SBF was just another example of that pattern. And if we don't learn that lesson, if we don't Follow, to borrow SBF's own leaked actually correspondences with a reporter where he said, we, we dumb Westerners say these woke shibboleths. Privately, he admitted that. That's exactly what we're doing. Learn the lesson once and for all that if a guy is a captain of industry calling for responsible regulation of his own industry, you probably want to scrutinize their motives and then run in the exact opposite direction. Instead, we keep getting duped every time. In a way, then, if you follow the logic of what you're saying, the world would be more virtuous and better and easier to understand if business just did business and was naked about its motives and left the activism to activists. I think that was the end of chapter one of Woke Inc. I think I literally said, keep it naked rather than disguising it with the masquerade of morality. I think keeping it naked is the way to go. If there's no shame in being a business leader who wants to advance your own interests. You don't need to apologize for it. In fact, you're doing society a service by allowing consumers and the general public to be as skeptical as they ought to be about somebody who's pursuing their own interests. But if you're doing it unapologetically and in an honest way, that skepticism will ultimately be overcome by saying that you're still providing me a product and service that makes my life better and I will pay you for it. That's the way that true free market capitalism is supposed to work rather than this, this bastardized version that creates this necessary veneer of morality as one of the boxes that you need to check as the modern ESG-infused version of capitalism. It's not a virtuous-infused version of capitalism, it's just the creation of this new ESG industrial complex that actually manages to serve the ends of the people who create it while actually sacrificing the interests of the people they were supposedly protecting. We see it time and again. It is not an accident, it's not just hypocrisy, it's an essential part of the game itself. And that's why I think it's worth commenting on. So we need to, to clean the machine Instead of going after the, the baddie capitalists, we need to go through these organizations and strip out the ESG teams, the DIE, the diversity, equity, and inclusion teams, the kind of people who are organizing volunteering for their teams on the weekends. I mean, how, how far would you go? Do you, do you really think that a company should 
should really have nobody working for them that is looking at the, as they call it, wider societal impact of that organization. In general, I think companies would be better off without it, but I do want to make a, make a distinction here. Every institution, every company still needs to have a higher purpose. It just needs to be its own purpose. And the problem with the three-letter acronymization of capitalism, ESG, DEI, CSR, or CCP for that matter, pick your favorite three-letter acronym, they're, they're more or less you know, advancing the same agendas. The problem with it is that it takes an off-the-shelf purpose and retrofits the purpose of every other organization into a common homogenous industry, pan-industry, pan-sector, pan-institutional purpose. So I think if you're a company, it's important to have a higher purpose that is your own distinctive purpose, but the kind of diversity that you want in your ranks ought to be about advancing your own institutional purpose, not some top-down capital D version of diversity that's uniformly imposed on everyone. I, I, just give you an example. I mean, let's say you're running a steakhouse, okay? You probably don't want diversity, even the ever-prized diversity of thought when it comes to, let's say, your employees' views on whether it is morally reprehensible to kill an animal for culinary pleasure. It's probably not an area where you want diversity of thought. It's probably one of the reasons why I would not make for a good employee at a steakhouse. I, I am a vegetarian on, on those grounds. Be that as it may, an institution needs to ask itself what kinds of diversity it wants, and it doesn't want to advance its own institutional purpose. And so, so I think that sometimes uh, you know, the, the view that I'm representing gets, I think, uh, incorrectly, uh, at least as in my version of articulating it, incorrectly reduced to just saying it's about maximizing green pieces of paper. I think that's a side effect of a good organization following its mission, and that's a, a great way to maximize shareholder value is to focus on your institutional purpose. But I think that there's a difference between actually being guided by your purpose versus by being guided by somebody else's top-down imposed societal purpose. That's the distinction I would draw. The only trouble is steakhouse. I think we, we all want the steakhouse to flourish. Or, I mean, maybe you don't, but a lot of people who enjoy steaks would. If you're Goldman Sachs or an investment house or a hedge fund or any kind of financial organization, your purpose is to you know, spot- Take a pile of money. Take a pile of money and make- a pile of money. Right. That's your purpose. And that's okay. That's great. Nothing to apologize for. And the question is, what kinds of diversity do you need? What kinds of diversity don't you need? It should all about being advancing that institutional purpose. But every organization has its own unique purpose. And I think once we start dressing it up with these externally imposed purposes to check box, that's when the system runs amok. I'm going to leave you with one final little defense of Musk here and see how you react to it. Because what you've just described seems like a pretty good description of how he runs his companies. At least if you think of SpaceX, which is a you know, extremely ambitious space exploration company, their purpose ultimately is to help humankind go to Mars. That's how he puts it. I mean, you can't think of a more ambitious purpose, whether you agree with it or not. Um, that's all he cares about. And he appears to drive every single staff member towards that single goal. Does that, yeah. does that make him your kind of purpose? I mean, going to, going to Neptune would be an even more ambitious purpose, right? But it's not, it's not how ambitious the purpose is or isn't or some hierarchy of ambition. It's having a clear purpose, a worthy purpose. And then going after it. So, you know, I, I think Elon Musk has, has historically done a great job of that. I hope that he brings that same mentality to the way he runs Twitter. But as I said, I, I could, you know, I could care less for Elon Musk or Schmusk or whatever. It's about actually the, it, applying the principles I'm describing. And he's a great vehicle through which we can see that applied in, in the American context. But I think that, I think that hopefully other leaders step up to do it too. I, I do. I, the only thing I sort of, I sort of cringe at a little bit is the is the you know sort of cult following nature of it. I, I think that we actually fall into and walk into traps because 
all human beings are fallible. And once we do that, we, we you know, repeatedly disappoint ourselves. But in terms of the principle of it, yeah, I think it's fair to say that he does operate a lot of his companies that way. I think many other leaders do too. Uh, and I think we need more of them, not just in the corporate sector, but in every sector of institutional life. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, guys. That was Vivek Ramaswamy, author of Woke Inc., sharing some rapid fire thoughts with us on Twitter, Elon Musk, FTX, the crypto crash, and how it all ties together in the concept of woke capitalism. He left us with a bit of a paradoxical thought there, which is maybe if companies around the world, right from the biggest ones through to the smallest ones, stop trying so hard to be virtuous, they might actually become more virtuous and more useful to the real world. Thanks to him, thanks to you for tuning in, this was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag, say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.